Welcome to the 17th episode of Heavier Than I Look, a podcast dedicated to healing, recovery, and storytelling. My name is Kier Russo, and I am your host. If you feel listening may aggravate your suffering or complicate your recovery, please take this notice as a trigger warning. Discuss with your support system as necessary, and as always, take what you need and leave what you don't. Today's episode is dedicated to Karen Carpenter, one half of one of the biggest American musical acts of all time, the Carpenters. Karen and her brother Richard amassed over 15 top hits, 10 gold hits, 9 gold albums, 1 multi-platinum album, and 3 Grammy Awards. Her struggles and the complicated familial dynamics that likely triggered it were broadcast on the national stage, becoming a tormenting tale of the wrath and seriousness of an eating disorder. Her tragic death at the young age of 32 prompted a cultural revival of the discussion of EDs. This is the topic we will explore today especially in conversation with Todd Haynes' film entitled Superstar, The Karen Carpenter Story. Karen's voice inspired, soothed, and entertained millions, but was disturbingly never available to herself. Which is why I want to preface this discussion with the fact that the following is pure conjecture, and without Karen's testimony, cannot be affirmed or decisively labeled as truth. Her story was never her own and was often stolen from her, as we will see. And therefore, her story is not ours either. Her influence is not to be forgotten, however, as it was and is formidable. Her image becoming nearly synonymous with anorexia itself. Carpenter was one of the first celebrity casualties of an eating disorder, which eventually led to other public figures addressing their struggles later on. Karen grew up in a generation of desired waifness, where the ideal body shape was known as Twiggy. After a lifetime of struggling with body image issues, Carpenter's fame prompted such as meticulous calorie counting and severe restriction. Carpenter's eventual weight loss prompted her a slew of attention from family, friends, and fans. Karen's mother, Agnes Carpenter, granted her attention long neglected. She was often overshadowed by her older brother, Richard, the other half of the musical band, The Carpenters, but never more so than with her own mother. Despite an external push from friends, fans, and critics for Karen to receive professional help, Agnes Carpenter was immobilized in her daughter's care because of the stigma surrounding mental illness and therapy. She thought Karen had just gone overboard with dieting, and this misdirection could easily be righted with her own intervention. Randy Schmidt, author of biography Little Girl Blue, The Life of Karen Carpenter, writes that her relationship with her mother and Agnes's inability to show the love and affection that Karen so desperately craved contributed to the emergence and worsening of her anorexia. The controlling matriarch 
so concerned with the public image of her children, demonstrated a misinformed and negligent understanding of eating disorders. Eventually, critics would comment on Karen's appearance in an unwelcome showing of objectification. In one review for Variety, a critic wrote, quote, She is terribly thin, almost a wraith, and should be gowned more becomingly. End quote. This prodding, disguised as concern, was heightened by eventual tour and concert cancellations because of Karen's illness. Her distance from the media's objectification of her body eventually came to a front in a BBC interview in October of 1981. Sue Lawley, host of the popular news magazine, unexpectedly accused Karen of, quote, suffering from the slimmer's disease, anorexia nervosa, end quote. To which Karen, caught off guard, frowned, quote, no, I was tired out, end quote. Lolly pressed further, quote, You went down to about six stone in weight, I think, didn't you? End quote. Karen, visibly uncomfortable and sitting next to her increasingly disturbed brother, replied, quote, I have no idea what six stone in weight is. End quote. In defending her interview, Lolly said that she was just asking Karen the questions that people wanted to know the answers to. Clearly, nobody understood Karen's eating disorder and its potential for lethal danger. Her band member, John Bettis, expressed, quote, Anorexia nervosa was so new that I didn't even know how to pronounce it until 1980, end quote. Many of her family and friends viewed eating as the cure to this silenced illness, ignoring and misunderstanding the psychological domains of the disorder. This anorexia transformed and worsened with a failing marriage to property developer Tom Burris, whose adamant refusal to start a family and alleged abuse left Karen devastated. She started misusing laxatives and thyroid medication, in an effort to purge what little food she consumed. Karen faced a whole host of health issues later on, including a catheter implantation, a punctured lung, and extreme exhaustion and dehydration. In February of 1984, Karen Carpenter was found dead on the floor of her childhood bedroom. She had poisoned herself with apicac syrup, an emetic commonly recommended to induce vomiting in cases of overdose. In two months of taking this over-the-counter medication, Karen had unknowingly completely dissolved her heart muscle. Her death led to the long-overdue discontinuing of ipecac. The conversation her death prompted also, quote, allowed the isolative and shameful nature of eating disorders to be brought out of hiding and into the public eye, end quote. Todd Haynes' experimental biography entitled 
superstar the Karen Carpenter story, explores Carpenter's life leading up to her tragic passing. The narrative follows an overly domineering brother, neglectful and misinformed parents, and a young girl largely pressured by the ideals of the industry and her family. Haynes uses heavily shadowed Barbie dolls to portray Karen and her family, and thus avoids the harm in film critic Laura Mulvey's fetishistic scopophilia, of which we discussed more extensively in episode 14, which was a to-the-bone case analysis. Almost immediately, the film is gendered, with the inclusion of a non-diegetic statement in which, quote, Karen's visibility as a popular singer only intensified certain difficulties many young women experience in relation to their bodies, end quote. This, perhaps, is an invitation to a feminist reading. Haynes's complete disregard of an actual female body is perhaps progressive in eating disorder portrayal on screen, as it avoids the possibility of Mulvey's fetishistic scopophilia, which can be triggering for certain audiences. Sarah Gilbert, a staff writer at The Atlantic who covers culture, writes, quote, Haynes incorporates and subverts virtually every cultural trope when it comes to eating disorders. The characters are portrayed by Barbie dolls, archetypal representatives of unrealistic female body types, end quote. Haynes' subversion of reinforced ideals of anorexia rebel against a fetishized societal comprehension of such disorders. Certainly, with Carpenter existing as the actualization of impractical and idealized female bodies, with the inclusion of the Barbie dolls, Haynes comments that a pressurized ideal of femininity and beauty is destructive in femaleness. Haynes portrays Carpenter's food obsession and self-discipline in restricting intake, supporting these claims with footage of some of Carpenter's artistry. One in which she collapses on stage after overdosing on laxatives. Further, he acknowledges the complexity of anorexia through his non-diegetic narration. It is recognized as, quote, an addiction and abuse of self-control, a fascism over the body in which the sufferer plays the parts of both dictator and emaciated victim who she so often resembles, end quote. Carpenter's addiction is visually portrayed as her Barbie skin is chipped away when she becomes severely emaciated. Literally and figuratively, ideals of femininity existing internalized within Carpenter and externalized within the doll are disrupted. Further, Haynes recognizes the commoditization of the female body, yet argues that the, quote, anorexic body excludes itself rejecting the doctrines of femininity, driven by a vision of complete mastery and control. End quote. These statements perhaps parallel Mulvey's view of the spectacle of the female body as reflected in our culture, yet argue that anorexia as an eating disorder destroys its own claim as a consequence of femininity because it excludes itself in a rejection of this coercive gender identity. Anorexia, thus, no longer reproduces itself as ideal femininity, existing instead as a rebellion against the notion of the female body as commodity and thus spectacle.
eating disorders and female embodiment of spectacle then become intertwined in a web of contradiction yet reinforcement. One complicated further, when understood through the lens of gendered excess. Eating disorders are phenomenological as experience of fascination and spectacle as supported by the film. Female victimization becomes that much more resonant given the nature of Carpenter's image as celebrity and star. Our culture response to her suffering and eventual death is heightened because of her perceived untouchability and her very existence as a spectacle who is exploited by the media. Although not an embodiment of female pain because of the lack of female bodies, the film's ability to also perpetuate feminine masochistic suffering in narrative format exists in Carpenter's inherently spectacular fame. Carpenter and her brother were one of the biggest-selling American musical acts of all time. Her, quote, effortless voice, end quote, as instrumental in their rise and maintenance of fame. Carpenter also unknowingly prompted a cultural debut of the seriousness of eating disorders, which elicited its own form of spectatorship excess. Randy Schmidt, her biographer, writes, quote, There was often a collective gasp from the audience when Karen would take the stage. End quote. In this way, Carpenter's life was in and of itself its own screen at which to view anorexia. She became an object to gawk at, trivialize, and dehumanize. Carpenter was unintentionally one of the first cultural portrayals of anorexia and has since, quote, become inextricable from the disease itself, end quote. Participating in, quote, a culture that has a morbid and complex fascination with emaciated female bodies, end quote. In this way, eating disorders can be glorified so as to encourage others to engage in similar behaviors. Our culture exclusively celebrates thinness, and as said before and as we'll say again, this becomes all that much more dangerous when eating disorder behavior is fetishized in one of the only mechanisms of progressing cultural understanding, the screen. Nearly 10 years before her passing, the Carpenters release a song entitled I Have You. Karen sings, Sometimes all the world can seem so friendless, and the road ahead so endless, and the dream so far away. Sometimes when I'm almost to surrender, then I stop and I remember, I have you to save my day. Carpenter's tragic experience sensitized the public to the seriousness of eating disorders. We must not forget her significance in that way, while also moving forward with the knowledge that Karen was so much more than her illness. She was an incredible talent whose voice was robbed from her too soon. If you would like to learn more about what sources I used in the discussion of Karen Carpenter and the film Superstar, The Karen Carpenter Story, my citations will be placed in the show notes.
Next week, HTIL will discuss eating disorder diagnosis, treatment, and recovery among males, and nuances and challenges that accompany this experience. Tune in on Friday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern. All new episodes of HTIL will be uploaded to Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts by 11.59 p.m. each Sunday night if you miss the live broadcast. Feel free to return to old episodes by visiting these sites. If you would like to listen to my own story of anorexia, binge eating, and body dysmorphia, you can listen on any of these platforms. Please consider sharing the podcast with family, friends, or those who you feel could specifically benefit. If you or someone you love might be struggling with an eating disorder, know that you have my full support in recovery and consider seeking treatment. If you feel treatment may be inaccessible to you, please consider seeking support through Project HEAL, which is the largest nonprofit in the United States delivering prevention, treatment financing, and recovery support for those struggling. Disordered eating has ruled my life for nearly six years, and I didn't think anything would ever be able to come in between that. Treatment did, and treatment does. If you are in a crisis situation, please contact NEDA's helpline by texting NEDA to 741741. HTIL has its very own Instagram and Twitter account, so if you would like to suggest your own episode topic or interact with the podcast further, please feel free to follow on Instagram at Heavier Than I Look or Twitter at HTIL Podcast. If you are interested in sharing your own story as a feature on the show, please direct message me on Instagram or Twitter. Don't be afraid to reach out. I would love to hear from you. My podcast, Heavier Than I Look, aims to empower survivors, educate listeners, and foster conversations surrounding eating disorders and body dysmorphia. Eating disorders demand silence, yet this podcast is an attempt to de-isolate and destigmatize a survivor's experience by giving a voice to each story. We must abandon a quantitative numerical definition of identity and reclaim our self-definition to exist beyond the numbers that rule our lives. In this way, HTIL is a space of healing, recovery, and storytelling. Let us no longer wonder how little space we can comprise, but instead wonder how to make that space one filled with love and sympathy. Goodbye for now.